Welcome back to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case. So if you're paying attention to the so-called culture wars in the United States, then you know that CRT is the acronym of the hour. And that stands for critical race theory. So something like 20 states now have passed laws forbidding its inculcation K through 12 education. And there's just a lot of debate about it. Are these laws just or unjust? What is critical race theory anyway? Here to unpack those questions and other questions with me, I have not one but two guests. It's the first time I've ever had more than one guest on a show. It's an experiment. We'll see how it goes. So first of all, I've got Sam Hoadley-Brill. Am I saying that right, Sam? That's right. Yep. And you are a PhD student at the City University of New York. Is that right? That's correct. And... uh Sam has taken on something of a, a public philosophy or a commentator role defending critical race theory from what he perceives to be unfair attacks. Is that a fair characterization? Sure. Yeah, I, I, I would say like more so like disinformation in the media rather than even like real like, you know, objections in the in the public dialogue. OK, cool. And then my other guest is. Oliver Traldi. Oliver, how you doing? I'm doing well. All right. Oliver's a PhD student at Notre Dame, and we've had him on before to talk about cancel culture. So it's good to have Oliver back. So I thought I would begin by um, explaining what I take critical race theory to be and then asking Sam to assess my, my account and you can even give me a, a grade, like an A through F mark, <laughs> based on how good or bad you think right. it is. If somebody were just to say, just explain to me what critical race theory is, I would say this. So I think that there's a lot of discussion about thinkers who you could argue are critical race theory people or inspired by critical race theory, like uh, Robin D'Angelo and Ibram Kendi, but if anything, they would be like a, on the outer edge of it. They're not like the inner core of what critical race theory is. So what critical race theory is at the, the inner core, it's a theory that developed in, in legal studies in the 1980s, following up on something called, I believe, a critical legal theory. So critical le legal theory is the idea that the law actually represents interests, power interests, it isn't objective or neutral. And so critical race theory is the same thing, but specifically with regard to racial interests. So uh, purportedly neutral or objective laws replicate racial power structures um, that benefit whites uh, and are to the detriment of others. It also includes the idea that racism is pervasive and uh, racial anti-realism is true. So so race is not really based on anything biological. It's socially constructed, and it's not even socially constructed in the way that money is. Money has got some important social use, but race is a pernicious kind of social construct. So there's this sort of suspicion of meritocracy and racial blindness, and these things are thought to conceal mechanisms that covertly replicate racial power relations. There are a few other things that are bound up with this. But the other things I keep coming across are the idea that there's 
interest convergence. So that is to say, the um, interests of non-whites can only really be advanced when white interests are advanced as well. And the idea of standpoint epistemology or something like it, which is the idea that there's certain important kinds of social information that is best represented or transmitted through like narratives of people who have been marginalized and have experienced oppression firsthand. And finally, the last thing I would say about this, and this is maybe one point where I would diverge from how critical race theorists describe their own views, because I think it's just an accurate way of describing it, even if they don't put it that way, and it's that it can join scholarship with activism. So it's supposed to be a truth-seeking enterprise in that we're supposed to be uncovering racial power structures. And at the same time, it's like a practice or a praxis, or it's something to that seeks to change the world or transform society by combating racism. And so those, I think, are the various elements of, of critical race theory. Uh, so how would you, how would you rate that uh, explanation? That was very well done, Spencer. That w- I would give that an A. Uh, wow. And, wow. you know, just, just above an A minus, but there's only like one little nitpicky thing I would uh, criticize. So just starting from the most recent thing you said, I don't think that they would object at all to calling critical race theory, not only academic, but, but uh, activist, right? So, so, uh, but a, a form of activism, they, they say that uh, frequently in their work, you know, they seek uh, in the words of Marx, right? Not, not only to, to interpret the world, but, but to change it. The, the one thing that I think you didn't quite get right in terms from, from most critical race theorists perspective was your point about the metaphysics of race. It sounded like you thought that race was socially constructed, but not in such a way as to have a kind of real existence. I think they want to say that race is like money, that, that, that it does have sort of effects in the world and serves purposes. And although it is nefarious in many ways, a lot of the critical race theorists think that the way to address racial injustice is not to try to abandon the concept of race, but often to form movements of solidarity within a race and kind of identify and maybe double down through a kind of identity politics. But yeah, otherwise, everything you said, I think was correct. So yeah, I agree that race is supposed to be something consequential, like that they think that but like, it's not like in a good way. It's not like, let's construct race in the right way or something like that. It's ultimately we would want to do away with this categorization, right? Well, that's that's something that's an interesting question. I think that a lot for a lot of critical race theorists, they share with Martin Luther King Jr. the ultimate goal where we're not judged, where we live in a world where we are not judged by our race. But for them, they think that the path to get there, much like King himself thought, was going to require race consciousness and that we couldn't just go colorblind now to get to the this kind of colorblind kingdom of ends. Oliver, do you have any comments on this? I uh, The main thing I want to say is what I said in my article on the matter, which is just that, you know, we should keep in mind that maybe the people who are talking about critical race theory kind of 
don't understand exactly what it is and that the the public discussion is about a kind of somewhat different phenomenon, right? So I think that, you know, when somebody holds up a chart from the Smithsonian about, uh, you know, whatever it is, like punctuality is a feature of whiteness or something like that, it you know, you can't trace that to law review articles from the 1980s, really. I, I assume this is something we'll talk about later, but I just want to, you know, flag that. That's kind of my my first pass at a view on these issues. Yeah, we'll get back to that when we, we discuss what I wanted to call the peripheral CRT figures, yeah, yeah. people like, yeah, like Candy and D'Angelo, whose categorization of CRT theorists is contentious. So I wanted now, Sam, to ask about particular planks of, of the CRT uh, platform, I guess, starting with the idea of interest convergence. Could you explain to us what that is? Yeah, so interest convergence is this idea you get from an article by Derek Bell, where he's talking about the decision in Brown v. Board of Education. And the standard sort of narrative of that case, as far as I remember from the paper, I only read it once and it was uh, a little bit ago, is that this was kind of just like a noble decision by the Supreme Court to uh, you know, apply the Constitution as they thought it applied. And so they ruled that separate but equal was not constitutional or something like that. So now schools are to be desegregated. So this is kind of like a, a liberal mainstream American narrative of how that decision went. And he says, well, I'm not so sure. It's it's hard to explain that given, you know, the the, the decisions that were uh, recently before it and went very different ways. And what Derek Bell argues is that actually... Uh, I, I can't remember the exact contours of his argument, but it's something like the Supreme Court felt that they needed to enact an anti-racist decision for the purposes of sort of improving the the, uh, the U.S.'s international reputation in the in the sort of face of the Cold War or something like that. And so the idea was that civil rights progress or sort of gains for racial minorities will only come when they are seen as also benefit benefiting white Americans. But I think particularly who Bell has in mind are sort of white elites. Mm-hmm. But does, can I ask a question? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What differentiates this? Because there, there are a lot of kind of like let's call them kind of like crude or naive views. And I don't use those words, simple views, let's say, right. They're kind of simple views of politics that involve basically like powerful people kind of try to arrange things so that their own interests or desires are served. Right. So is interest convergence just kind of like a, a specific application of that kind of, let's call it the simple power theory of politics or something like that, where it's like these white elites are the ones with the power. And so they're just, yeah. It seems to me that that is the case and that the kind of like, if someone were to challenge that and ask, well, you know, how how, how are you so sure that you can just apply it uh, to race, right? How do you know that races have this kind of common interests or something? Mm-hmm. And, and the critical race theorists would argue that they do because of the way that sort of like the law has constructed race and the, hmm. and white supremacy segregation etc yeah 
Yeah. So I don't, I mean, it sounds not necessarily right, but at least, you know, kind of like a standard type of theory, um, an interest kind of a self-interest or group interest based theory. I think I've always thought there's something a little bit odd in all kind of group interest theories. So like in a class, you know, Marx has a kind of class interest theory and there's a question of how do, how does my class's interest become my interest? How do I kind of internalize my class interest and things like that? But if you can get over that conceptual barrier, then, you know, um, it's a pretty straightforward theory, at least. So, Samia, I was going to interrogate this, and I was thinking that there's this question of how broadly we should define interests. So, in the most narrow sense, interests refer to, like, my financial and physical well-being, something like this, the amount of power that I have. But it seems to me that a lot of the stuff that Bell glosses over in his article seems more moralized than that, maybe. like So, for example, a lot of Americans in the Cold War believed that the United States had a superior system to the Soviet Union, and it could bring freedom and flourishing to millions of people, and that there was this is a morally important contest going on here. And so if the idea is that we're going to make some progress on this racial issue because it will help us advance our system internationally because that's a morally just cause. That doesn't strike me as just interests in, in the normal sense of, of, of the word. It seems a little bit deflationary to talk about this as mere interests when it seems to me like there's this moral component to it. And it seems to me when I read Derek Bell's paper and I read others who you know followed in his his footsteps philosophically it seems like there's this desire to i don't know downplay or even count out entirely the idea that whites have moral convictions and beliefs and that this changes in these moral beliefs have a lot to do with their changes in attitudes toward blacks over the years so i totally get that that reading the way that I read it, um, there's at least one explicit qualification that Bell has in the paper where he says, like, you know, there are absolutely white Americans who opposed segregation on moral grounds alone. And they they, uh, you know, they campaigned for civil rights simply because they thought it was the right thing to do. I think he just shares the view with a lot of people. I think it would probably be the majority of politicians, at least. I know MLK himself was writing this, at least at the end of his his life, that moral persuasion will never be enough to sway an entire election. Or while there are individuals who are motivated sufficiently on moral grounds, that you cannot expect that sort of thing to happen at the at the mass scale. Well, I think it's sort of trivially true that moral suasion alone isn't going to do this. Like moral suasion alone, it's hard to imagine that convincing, you know, 90% of Americans to give most of their incomes to Oxfam or something like that. Like it's just a fact about human beings that we're not tremendously self-sacrificial. So if that's all it's saying, it doesn't seem like it's saying anything important, not something, not something important. I mean, not something like really surprising or novel, but it does seem to me that there are like major cultural shifts 
with enough people moving their attitudes in a certain direction. And one of the, one of the drivers for that after World War II, which I don't think Bell mentions in the article, is that we just had Hitler showing the reductio of racism, you know, taking it to its most extreme manifestation in the Holocaust. And that, I think, probably jarred some people and knocked some scales off of some eyes and caused people to rethink the way we've been treating African-Americans. And so it seems like to collapse this all into interest and then to say that resistance to forced busing was whites and blacks interests diverging again, like I don't see any evidence of that. It seems like it's easy to explain why people were opposed to forced buzzing and affirmative action without saying anything about a divergence of interests. It seems pretty clear to me that in the main, white and black interests in America do align because we, we share a society. And, and if one group is suffering, the other group is not going to be doing all that well either, most likely. I'm, I'm a little confused by the f- forced busing example. Um, but I mean, I, I don't think that Derek Bell would would exclude moral interests from the domain of interests under consideration. I think that he would allow those to count in in the sort of set of all interests that are uh, relevant. Otherwise, you might think that he has a kind of conception of interest according to which the only interests that matter are kind of material, in which case people are often wrong about those interests. And so it would be hard for those to converge. So I think it, it would be something more subjective and thus that he would allow morality to play a role. I mean, in the case of uh, Brown v. Board, though, right, the, the, the only people who are making the decision are the Supreme Court justices, right? It's not, a, a, it's, it, it was a decision that in fact, uh, a number of white Americans opposed at the time. I'm not, I, I don't know whether it was a majority of white Americans, but I imagine that it was the majority of white Americans at the time. But the question I think there was specifically in terms of white elites, because those were the people making the decision that the Supreme Court justices. I have, I have a question. If you include moral interests as some of the interests, doesn't the theory risk being kind of like trivial? That was um, exactly going to be my response. No, I, yeah. Go ahead, Ollie. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in some ways it is kind of trivial. And I think that the only reason that Bell felt like uh, articulating it was because of this kind of ahistorical narrative that was sort of dominant, I think, in the legal academy at the time in the discussion of Brown v. Board. Yeah, but I mean, so, okay, look, help me understand something then. You said the liberal narrative is that you know, it wasn't just white people doing what they thought was right. It was white people following their interests. But if their moral interests are among their interests, wouldn't those include like what they think was right? Maybe I'm not understanding the, the idea of moral interests. I mean, I, you know, I, I think I get your point and, and they would. And his point then in this case would just be, well, as a matter of fact, they didn't have those interests in this case. Oh, OK. So conceptually it could have been the theory would have included the liberal case but it's combined with a historical case that actually this morality was not actually a feature of the white liberal mindset at the time yeah that's okay, my interpretation fair enough. That, that makes sense fair enough sorry uh it, it might be worth just like reiterating 
the fact that I think Bell does believe, uh, you know, the vast majority of the time, our interests are not right going to be like overridden by our by our moral interests, right? That they that these are often not the most powerful ones. In terms of yes, yeah, psychology, that seems to be true empirically. So let's then move on to another important component of critical race theory, which um, I don't know if it would be anachronistic to call it standpoint epistemology, because I don't know if it was called that at the time when the core CRT was being formed. But this idea that there's important social information that is embedded in the experiences of the oppressed and the historically marginalized, and that thus we ought to pay some special attention to their perspectives when thinking about social events and forming policy in this. Um, could you expand on that, uh, Sam? Well, I mean, I think you articulated the central point pretty well. The real crux of the issue, I think, is going to turn on how strong or weak our version of standpoint epistemology is. So on a strong reading, you get what Ofemi Taiwo has called deference epistemology. And that is the sort of thing that I think we see too often today in certain social justice circles, demands to listen to people of color, uh, listen to, you know, we've, we've heard from too many white men, let's give the microphone to someone else. And the only qualification that they need to have is that they are some other race and gender, because that will, to me, obviously leads to certain issues, uh, especially from a progressive perspective. If you want to talk about, you know, how a black woman's perspective is relevant to why reparations are necessary, uh, Candace Owens is probably not the right person to listen to. So identity alone doesn't get you all the way. And so that's why I favor a weaker version of the standpoint epistemology thesis, which is that knowledge is socially situated and that one's social position determined by one's identity in a specific social context has a kind of probabilistic effect on the kinds of knowledge one is likely to have, uh, the kinds of experiences one is likely to have, the sorts of social relations one is more likely to understand, perhaps. There's a, you know, there's many different epistemic dimensions in which this plays out, but that's the sort of basic view. And there are definitely some critical race theorists who I think have too strong a version of this thesis. And I myself like to stay uh, a bit more on the weaker side. Without getting too far into it, I want to, I want to say that I think staying on the weaker side of it is, is the right move. I think it's a well-advised move. And, uh, I think uh, what Matt Brunig in 2013 called identitarian deference um, is very common in these circles. And it's good to be able to make these distinctions. And I think it's, you know, it's one of the services that public philosophers can offer. We can say, look, these claims are related and kind of similar, but we can explain what the distinctions are among them and explain why, you know, one of them might be preferable to the other ones. I think that often... The the whole idea of standpoint epistemology, I think, is sometimes 
made into something even less than what Sam says, where it has to do just with like different people have had different experiences. So you should trust people more about the sorts of experiences that they've had, but you don't need any, you don't need any content about like standpoints or it doesn't have to do with identity category, right? Like that is a very, very thin claim that sort of like doesn't either even require stating or doesn't really need like a theoretical name. So I just want to, you know, I want to make sure it's understood that usually standpoint epistemology means something kind of at least as robust as what Sam is saying. There are some advantages in going, as you say, Sam, the, the weak route and saying it's not deference, it's something weaker than that. But there is one disadvantage that you get with that, which is that I can say, okay, well, I, as a white man, have not experienced systemic racism. However, I've read more books about it than you person who has. So why don't I know more all things considered? Why can't I say, since this isn't deference, and maybe I've just thought about this more, maybe I've just read more books, maybe I'm just less politically biased. And it seems like we're not supposed to be saying that kind of thing. Or at least I never hear standpoint epistemologists emphasizing this as a possibility. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to point out that that's definitely not something that they uh, spend a lot of time in the literature arguing. But if they are uh, on the weaker side, for instance, like my professor Charles Mills is, and he's clarified this in class that he is open to that sort of thing in principle. I don't know if he's gone actually say that he's open to that in principle, but I, I mean, I assume he is. Uh, he, he's open to someone reaching the same level as someone else. In terms of when we talk about knowledge and we talk about standpoint epistemology, there's a couple of different kinds of knowledge that might be relevant, right? So when we talk about systemic racism, a black person who grew up in, say, you know, a, a poor, uh, predominantly black neighborhood who has experienced the kind of structural racism that is, you know, a direct consequence of uh, the history of white supremacy in this country and redlining and all those sorts of things. Well, then they're going to know about what it's like to uh, experience that. And no matter how many books you read, you probably won't reach their level of knowledge on an experiential level or a phenomenological level. But when it comes to, you know, asking the question of, well, what do we do to ameliorate the systemic racism that we think exists or structural racism or institutional racism that exists. Well, then I think we're going to want the person who's read more books, right? Or who, who has dedicated more time to researching the issue. I don't think there's anything inherent to the experience of systemic racism that actually helps you to learn, you know, what, what the optimal solution is. Interesting. That's a a concession I think a lot of standpoint epistemologists would not want to make. So for example, five years ago, I was at a panel on affirmative action at the Rocky Mountain Ethics Congress that featured Bernard Boxel. And his entire argument for affirmative action for African-Americans to get into universities, this kind of affirmative action, is that, well, they have experienced racism 
and have this kind of epistemic privilege and therefore would presumably know more about how to solve it. And that, that was his argument. Now, now, not that you have to necessarily take his line, but it seems to me that is some, that is the kind of thing that it seems is, is asserted a lot. Like if it were just purely experiential, then I wonder how important it is, right? Like my family lost a lot in the 2008 housing crash. And I could tell you a lot about what it was like for us to go through that. But that doesn't give me any kind of, of useful social knowledge as far as like preventing housing bubbles and stuff. Like if you read a single book on how to prevent housing bubbles, you would know more about this than I do in virtue of having been through that. It seems like there's supposed to be something about this experience that is, I don't know, informative, like substantive in a way. Otherwise, I'm not sure I know what the point is. I think for for the strong uh, standpoint of epistemologists, you usually do see that kind of thing. And that's that's part of why I thought that Olufemi Taiwo's piece on that's called being in the room privilege, where he did, draws a distinction between standpoint and, and deference epistemology. He actually explicitly at the end dedicates the last sort of section of the paper to explaining how he does not think that trauma uh, necessarily is a form of education, right? He's like, we shouldn't treat trauma like prep school. Traumatic experiences do not necessarily help us navigate the world better. It would be kind of surprising if if they sort of inevitably did. And so, I mean, I, I will agree with you that I think that kind of argument from someone who advocates still a form of standpoint epistemology is rather rare. Um, but I think it's right. And I'd add there'd be something repugnant with the thought that like, um, if I traumatize you and this trauma is a, an important form of knowledge, that it seems like I've benefited you in some way. Maybe you should even be grateful to me for that. That seems like an implication we don't want. Yeah, I, at least I don't I don't want that, <laughs> that implication. Um, I, this is something I've always wondered about, about the standpoint of epistemologies, because experiences aren't you know, there's there's lots of debates in philosophy about the transparency of experience, right? And how much we even know about our own experiences. But certainly, nobody, it's not at all plausible to argue, because I've had this experience, I know a lot about what caused it, right? In some cases, we know a lot about the causes of our experiences. And in other cases, they're, they're completely uh, obscure to us, right? And that's just kind of that's a fact about life, right? That's the the Kafka-esque nature of life is that things are always happening to us and we don't really know why a lot of the time, right? We're in a a relationship and then suddenly it ends and we say life isn't fair and I don't know why that happened. And that's just the way life is, right? So I think the idea that, you know, by experiencing something, somebody becomes becomes an expert on the causes of those experiences, that's not at all a viable idea. Um, And it's, it's really good to abandon it. Um, And, uh, yeah. So again, I'm just agreeing with Sam, really. I wanted to make one further argument on this that I think threatens even the weaker notions of standpoint epistemology. And that's that it seems like at least sometimes these experiences might be an epistemic liability. It seems like there are at least sometimes where being victimized distorts your thinking in a certain way, or at least it can have that effect. And there are a number of different points of evidence here. One is just from personal experience. I've 
been a victim of a violent crime once. And I know that one of the immediate effects of that on me was to want something more than justice, want some kind of revenge. I don't imagine that I'm the only one in the world who feels that way. And you can even look at writings of people. Like I just happened to have finished um, The Fire Next Time, Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. And it seems like he sort of concedes, oh, you've got it right there. Terrific. And by the way, I think you'd probably agree with me that I would I would put that ahead of most of the social justice sort of ramblings that are currently popular. Baldwin is the goat. Yeah, he's a goat. I, I'm not familiar with that, but I assume it's a good thing. Uh, greatest of all time, but yeah. N- yeah. It's impressive. He's, he is a serious intellect and writer. But there are parts in that narrative where, for example, he's talking about the nation of Islam and some of the stuff that they say about white people, and he's finding himself on an intellectual level recoiling from it. But on an emotional level, he finds that he can't quite condemn it. He can't quite forcefully condemn it. And it seems like his his experience of being treated so badly by whites made it hard for him to evaluate that objectively. And I can give you other examples of people who say that being victimized by uh, whites in various ways has made them sort of like paranoid or self-conscious, or it's had these negative consequences. And so if that's the case, why think that on balance, the effects of experiencing marginalization are going to be an epistemic positive? So I think we have to be careful about how we formulate the the weak thesis of standpoint epistemology, because I don't think I disagree with anything you've said in the sense that I acknowledge that uh, there are certainly cases in which uh, being the victim of a kind of oppression or violence or something along those lines um, is largely an, is is an epistemic uh, disadvantage rather than an epistemic advantage. But I think the thesis is just that your experiences and your social location, right, particularly along certain dimensions of social identity influences uh, what you are likely to believe, know, at least. And that is entirely compatible with there being cases in which the experience of victimization, you know, for a particular purpose is uh, harmful rather than helpful. I think we just have to sort of distinguish the kind of what for, right? So like the experience of being the victim of a violent crime can be epistemically beneficial for certain purposes, like empathizing with someone else who who has had that. But it might be epistemically, it might give, it might set you at an epistemic disadvantage in terms of your ability to assess the appropriate uh, response or punishment, as you suggested. So what do you think, Oliver? Make, makes sense to me. Um, I certainly don't know. I don't know much about the, the underlying theory here. I don't know about the um, what the plausible effects of, of victimization 
would really be. I'm I'm happy enough to get somebody to back off of the the strong stand-up point epistemology theory. So <laughs> I'm I'm happy with the way this went. No Maybe. pushback from Spencer. Nah, I think I think we're good. I think we're good on this um, for now. I mean, I wanted to do a whole podcast on on standpoint epistemology. Obviously, there's a lot more to say about about this. So um, maybe now would be a good point to transition to the more political sort of questions. Oliver, I know you've got you've got a lot to say on these sorts of questions. There are, there are a few things that are at issue in the in the political debate about the CRT bills. One is what is the kind of explicit content of the bills? Another is what is their likely effect? Another is like what is the downstream you know, some people think that there's this plan to once we get this bill in, then there's like a next step, then we start banning other things that might be taught and eventually you're not even allowed to say the word racism in American high schools, which obviously would be a very bad result for education and for you know, liberalism or whatever the heck. So there are, there are a few ways of pushing back against the bills that have come out of this. One way, which I know Sam has pursued, but I don't know, I don't know to what extent he still holds this view. One tack that people were taking was, so my view, maybe I should have started out by saying this. My view is that for all we might debate interest convergence and standpoint epistemology and intersectionality and other theses that are kind of vaguely associated with the critical legal theory and critical race theory movements and things like that, they're not really what um, these bills are aiming at. The bills seem to be what they explicitly seem to aim at is these kind of like Robin D'Angelo, Ibram Kendi style like trainings and the content of um, – well, there's two types of content, one which I think is maybe a better target than the other. The possibly better target is the stuff that's like, hey, like kid in my class, have you ever thought about the fact that being white gives you all these advantages and that you should feel really bad about that? So that's the sort of thing that I think does at least sometimes happen. Um, I think I've seen Sam in kind of many, many arguments about how often it happens, and I know much less about that than he does. And then there's another kind of thing which I kind of understand but kind of don't, which comes up in a lot of these bills, which is like, um, what sorts of things are you allowed to say about America? And uh, I don't, I can kind of understand how they ended up in the bill, but also kind of really don't think that they should have. I know that a lot of the rhetoric of, say, the 1619 Project or of maybe like a Kendi or D'Angelo is sort of like, America was has like an original sin of slavery and it was like stained from the beginning and we need to like unlearn this or like root it out or we need to kind of like purify ourselves of this like original evil. Now, I think that stuff is kind of like nonsense or, or kind of like, you know, that's the sort of thing that makes people say this is like a new religion, right? Because it has this kind of language of sin and purification and things like that. But I don't really think, I think, um, if it was the target, then the bills have have are are went too broad in t- kind of trying to address that target. The bills often say things like, "You can't teach that America has been like racist since its beginning" or something like that. And it just seems that that's kind of like a theory that some historians and some sociologists hold, and uh, shouldn't be like 
excluded. I do think there are important questions about just like, what is what are we trying to do in education? What do we expect out of kids in education? What do we expect out of teachers in education, especially public education, um, that are very difficult? Um, the New York Times editorial by four people that, you know, some of them I like and the other ones I respect. Um, Jason Stanley, Camille Foster, uh, Thomas Chowton Williams, and uh, David French. I was looking again at it today, and there was a paragraph in it that says, um, you know, if we, if, we, if we don't teach about redlining, then it'll be impossible. We'll be creating students who will never be able to understand the arguments around reparation. So I think, first of all, that doesn't make sense to me. Like, people can just learn about redlining wherever they, you know, wherever. And secondly, like, I don't know if anybody graduating in most American public high schools can understand any argument, right? Like, I just don't think, I think we we should be kind of, like, part of this has to do with, like, just being realistic about, like, I would love it if there were a high school class on, like, abstract algebra, but it's just not going to happen, right? So I think part of this conversation is, like, what exactly are we expecting from the the students, right? We have this long conversation about distinguishing different forms of standpoint epistemology. I'm not sure that that's something that we that we could really expect students to understand even in like a college intro philosophy class, right? Let alone some like high school civics class that we expect, you know, st- many students who are not even going to be able to go to college uh, to take. So I think all of these things are elements of the conversation. The, the ban as a way of dealing with a lot of these things, probably not the right way to go. I don't think of myself as a political actor. So I haven't thought that hard about like, what should they have done instead or like stuff like that. Um, I know that there was for the kind of training people to be sad about their whiteness kind of thing. There's a civil rights lawsuit uh, in California right now. Um, Sam might have a variety of thoughts about that. Um, I do think that, there's just one thing that I wanted to address because I want to I want to see what Sam thinks about this, whether he really thinks it's true. This is something I think I've seen Jason and a few other people say on social media. People say the real end goal of these bans is to make it impossible to teach about racism in American public schools. So I just want to I want to give an example of three examples, if I can remember all three of things that I that I learned about in maybe like AP US history. And I want to know, are these things that are, that, that actually fall under the bands? Are they things that we expect to be further or are they just not good examples of teaching racism? So the first example I thought of was like, um, I'm not going to remember all three now. I was like thinking about it and preparing, but I'm not going to remember now. Um, the first example was, oh yeah. So we learned about this thing called manifest destiny, which is like a great example of something, a phrase that I never heard after, after high school, but heard a lot in high school history classes. Here's what I learned in my high school history class, which was an AP class. So it was fairly advanced, I guess. And there was a good teacher for it. So we learned, you know, in the 18, like 30s and 40s or whatever, or maybe 50s, I forget the timeline, but there's this idea that Americans had called manifest destiny, which was just like, it's our like God-given right and like purpose to spread out across the continent and kind of like take over and make the best use of it. We learned that America had this identity and that this identity was tied up in this project and that this project was kind of bad. It was bad in a racial way, right? Led to treating people of other, you know, racializing people and treating them bad. 
badly on the basis of that racialization, right, across many vectors. And I was wondering, I guess, um, does it, like, was I being taught critical race theory when I learned about Manifest Destiny in high school? Is it the sort of thing that falls under the bands? And if the answer to both of those things is no, I guess part of what I'm wondering is, what is it that the kind of, whatever it is that they're learning now, the more, the more CRT-related stuff, what does that add that that these sorts of things in history class weren't getting us? Yeah, so I think it's very important with these bills to acknowledge that they're not all the same and that there are like definitely layers like levels so to me like the there's like a worst tier which are the bills that um if i remember correctly are have been passed in tennessee oklahoma texas and arizona and the problem that i have with all of those, I'm pretty sure it's all four of those, is that the language, the, the way it's written, what is prohibited is not teaching X, but making X a part of a course. Not even, right? So so the, the things that are standardly banned under all of these things um, basically all come from the Trump executive order Um, from September that was like banning critical race theory trainings in the federal government. And that was like teaching that someone should feel ashamed because of their race, teaching that some race or sex, uh, I'm pretty sure all of these bills are race or sex, are inherently inferior or superior, this sort of thing. And insofar as the bills contain just those things, I'm pretty sure they're just reinforcing existing civil rights law insofar as a public institution cannot discriminate against a person on the count of their race or sex. But when you make, when you construct the language such that it's just making X a part of the course, then you get into the territory where I think, yeah, you couldn't teach manifest destiny insofar as part of manifest destiny is the idea that, you know, white people were superior to the savage Indians And that's, you know, a part of racial supremacy. You can't make racial supremacy part of the course. So just as just as you might not be able to teach Robin DiAngelo because she says white people have to feel guilty or whatever, you might not be able to teach the concept of manifest destiny because the concept includes a racialized element. Right. And and thus you wouldn't be able to teach a lot of history, American history, civil war, et cetera. But of course, there are some of the bills that have this language and some don't. Right. Okay. It's only four, I think, who have that extreme, just making it a, a part of the course. And these will probably be tossed out once challenged. Because, I mean, how can that hold up? Then there are some that are more defensible, but I think still f- seriously, deeply flawed, like the one in New Hampshire, at least the way that it was uh, first drafted when Rufo and Lindsay were testifying uh, in support of it. And that one is basically like a complete copy and paste of the executive order, but just applied to the state of New Hampshire rather than um, the federal government. And the problem with that one that I found in particular, I mean, I also, like you, don't think that we should be banning, you know, the idea that you can't teach that America is like 
was racist at its founding or was founded on white supremacy, I think that that sort of thing should not be banned. I think most teachers are not going to say that to their students anyways. But the way that race or sex stereotyping in particular is defined according to these bills that take language directly from the executive order, they say like, well, you can't stereotype on the basis of race or sex, which means attributing to a race or sex or to an individual in individual uh, because of their race or sex, a, a bunch of things that includes, you can't attribute to them uh, status or privilege uh, on account of their race or sex. And the word status, I, I went, I had to actually like look this up because like, okay, well, what exactly does status mean? And the first definition I got was basically like relative position in a kind of maybe a hierarchy or or a uh, like a just sort of stratified space. So, I mean, if you say, can you then say, for instance, that Asian, the Asian Americans uh, on average make more money than uh, African Americans? That sounds like attributing to people a status on the basis of their race. Right. Um, yeah. So that's a problem with that kind of uh, bill, which is not exactly as egregious, I think, as the others. Um, and then there's ones like, well, Florida's legislation is actually not a, a bill, but uh, was a sort of, I think, a, an amendment that was passed by the State Department of Education that just ex explicitly refers to the 1619 Project and critical race theory, which it defines as the idea that racism can be embedded in the law in a way that upholds white supremacy, that those things were explicitly forbidden. All the other bills don't really name critical race theory usually. Uh, but I think the Texas law actually does ban the 1619 Project though. And so generally, I'm against all these bills, but I think that some are a lot worse than others. And then to, to answer your question about, you know, do I really think that these are intended to stifle or prevent all discussion of racism in public education? I mean, I think that there are probably some GOP lawmakers who have that kind of a goal. I think that the motives, though, are generally kind of varied for this. I think some you know, know that through this kind of legislation, they can just intimidate educators enough so that they won't say any of the really controversial stuff. I think some of the lawmakers, I think some of the lawmakers are simply trying to cause more of a, of a moral panic uh, at their local school board or something and thus get more uh, conservatives active in local politics. And I think that is working wonders for the GOP right now. I think some uh, have the motivation of trying to really cripple public education itself. And so, you know, get people to think that public schools are going to teach their kids all this critical race theory crap that they can point to from people like Chris Rufo and then get people to homeschool their kids or go uh, to prefer private schools or make enough of a stir so that they can get away with 
uh, massive budget cuts. So I think there are a lot of different motivations. But to answer your question, some people probably want that. So I just wanted to ask, so uh, I forget if I asked this before, but you mentioned existing civil rights laws. So I haven't looked closely at the California lawsuit, but are you in favor? Like, do you think it's a good thing, you know, that civil rights law prevents, you know, a teacher from kind of picking on a kid because of their saying race? Saying to some specific yeah. student, yeah, saying to some specific student, you should apologize for your whiteness or like get up here and, you know, explain how your whiteness has advantaged you and stuff like that. You think that's bad, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're on the same page about that being bad. Um, so that's good. I don't know. Spencer, what are your thoughts? I've got a number of thoughts. Um, one is just about this whole way of how you present American history. As far as describing America as racist at its founding and, and so on and so forth, I, I think I know what the laws are going for and – I could be wrong about how effective they are at combating it, but the kind of view that I think is appropriately banned in schools is something that is completely condemnatory of the United States of we are inherently racist and irredeemably so there's no hope. So the idea that like, there was this original sin and, you know, that that kind of Christian language obviously predates critical race theory. You see it in Martin Luther King that and you know, there's this promissory note that the of the Declaration of Independence, which is we're now cashing in on or trying to cash in on or something that seems completely fine. I don't imagine that anyone really wants to ban that or maybe a few do, but not many. But the thing that I think there is a kind of anti-Americanism that I think is appropriate to ban And I think the left has a difficult time recognizing that there is such a thing as criticism of one's nation that is not constructive, that is not helpful, it's not useful. And there's a kind of straw manning of of conservatives, I think, or anyone who believes in patriotism, that what we want is a version of America that is completely whitewashed and has no instances of historical sins that need to be talked about. Oh, and we just want to introduce some criticism here. I can give you examples of people saying things that are clearly beyond any kind of constructive criticism. So I was watching another podcast where they brought on a critical race theorist in education, and I forget the guy's name, but he was specifically defending critical race theory against what he saw as unfair charges. So Sam, kind of doing what what you are doing, but he was asked about he was asked to contrast his views with Ibram Kendi, who compared racism to a cancer on the United States. And he said, oh, that's the one thing I disagree with about Kendi is I don't think that it's like a cancer on the U.S. It's more like the respiratory system. So what, the solution would be national suicide or something. You can't live without a respiratory system. So I just don't see why any kind of country would have an interest in inculcating kids to despise it. And I think that kind of that kind of miseducation is appropriately banned. Now, I agree that like law is a blunt instrument and I worry about overreach. At the same time, I think if the entire conversation is about overreach, it's not taking the problem seriously. Any kind of legal solution to any kind of problem is going to have some undesired consequences. 
So I can imagine, I used to teach at high schools in Colorado with something called Philosophy Outreach, um, Philosophy Outreach Program Colorado or POPCO. And so I would go to these, these schools, including Columbine, and give lessons in philosophy. And there were some really, really stellar advanced teachers in Colorado, like amazing. You know, basically it was like teaching a college class. So I can absolutely imagine that there are some teachers out there who could say, okay, this class, we're going to focus on the 1619 project and we're going to read some criticism of it. We're going to do a deep dive and we're going to think about it, you know, and come up, come to your own conclusions. I absolutely know that there are school teachers out there who could do a, an amazing job of that. And it would be a terrific educational experience. But I also don't think most teachers are like that. And I think that there is a real effort to not just put ideas forward, but to actually indoctrinate. And an example of this would be, you know, Ibram Kendi's got the, the, this book called Stamped from the Beginning, but then he's got one for high schoolers just called Stamped. And now there's one called Stamped for Kids that's pitched at six to 12 year olds. Don't tell me that this is meant to be critically discussed. A six-year-old or a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old. An anti-racist baby. <laughs> an anti-racist baby. Okay. Yeah. Like this stuff is not meant to be critically discussed. So I think there is a real problem with this kind of indoctrination. I think there is a, a, yeah, on the left, you do find a lot of this unreflective knee-jerk, I called it inverted nationalism, that is an exact mirror image of, of some of the knee-jerk nationalism you see on the right. I think that's a problem. And, well, I guess I'm more open to these sort of legislative remedies, even if they're going to have some bad consequences. So I guess that's my general perspective here. One thing I would, I'm just curious, like, does it matter to you in principle whether the kind of violations or would-be violations of these uh, bills are already happening? Like, do you think it's good to introduce this kind of legislation if, in fact, it's like not an issue or or is like a, you know, a, a pseudo issue? I don't think there need to be a huge number of cases for this to be worth doing. And my reason is that I just see this kind of stuff cropping up everywhere in such a way that makes me think that if it's not already ubiquitous, in public schools, it's going to get there. You know, you're going to get these activists in positions and they're going to want to implement this stuff. And, you know, you, I, you look at the effort that the New York Times put into disseminating the 1619 Project and the effort to promote these candy books to kids. Um, and just the fact that you'll see, for example, it just seems like I come across something like this every week, if not every day, like the editor of National Geographic signing off with white and learning, you know, and this kind of stuff. It <laughs> seems like this sort of stuff is so ubiquitous or like, I'll give you my favorite example from last summer when it seemed like every corporation or organization whose email list I was ever on had to, had to send me some identical statement affirming anti-racism and all of this. And I got one from Under Armour, the sports <laughs> underwear company telling me not to be a white supremacist. Like I really need that. 
so just the the fact that this is spreading like wildfire makes me think okay if you're right sam if this is rare i expect it's coming i expect it's coming Hmm. i mean i think it's probably very widespread in the corporate world um because of the the incentives that are there uh to like the like the kind of market incentives like you know if we can advertise our anti-racism, that'll score us some points with our, you know, our uh, market. But um, also because of um, it's a, a preemptive defense against litigation, right? We do these we do these ridiculous trainings, and therefore it shows that we can't have a hostile environment because look how look how much we paid this consultant to come, right? So, do you think? Let me ask you: Do you think these workplace trainings? Do you think that's like part of what really has people irked and they're just going after the I think that's actually because because that's where the legislation can actually be passed. You can't legislate what a corp a corporation can train people to do. I think to a huge extent, that's part of our kind of zeitgeist and part of the um, the backlash to this kind of thing that you have not only from conservatives, but from many liberals too uh who don't like this stuff and and even like leftists you know like more like marxists and communists would the, the few that we have don't like this stuff either because it's it's uh you know like your adolf reeds and stuff they don't like this because it's not it's not addr- it's not addressing material conditions at all it's 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 kind of focused on these ideas about microaggressions or implicit bias um a lot of which you know rests on shaky science and if you look at the empirical studies of well do these improve the workplace and uh racial relations in the workplace they don't and they're gonna have to be counterproductive so we know that the vast majority of this kind of anti-racist diversity training stuff uh is no good and is done kind of for show and it's kind of like a little late stage well not late stage because uh, I'm not that optimistic uh, capitalism vibe. So much of this is like someone had a Robin D'Angelo like training or knows someone who did and had a bad experience or uh, read something bad about it. Uh, and, and, and you also see this in the kind of elite private schools where you don't see it in the public schools. Like if you can think of the most concerning things you've heard in, in the like anti-racist realm happening to students, things being said to students, virtually every example I've heard of is from like an elite New York City prep school. Right. Um, and that's or, another weird thing yeah. about the fear that a lot of it is in locations where this is most likely to be happening in locations where parents are actually more supportive of it, right? Because teachers are more likely to be highly liberal in areas where parents are more likely to be highly liberal, right? That's why, you know, a lot of these stories are coming out of New York. And I remember, you know, people don't realize how long some of this stuff has been going on, but it was 17 years ago that I had my freshman orientation for college at a small liberal arts college. Like we had a ton of this stuff. And I think probably a lot of private institutions were already going this route back in the, you know, pre-financial crash days, you know? I was talking to um, a critical race theory professor, uh, Georgetown law professor, uh, Gary Peller, who's one of the editors of the big red critical race theory volume. And um, we were talking because he hates this 
diversity training stuff. Like he's a, he's a critical race theorist. He hates this stuff. And he was saying, you know, he when he was like a teenager in high school, uh, I think in the 60s, right around like the civil rights movement, you know, there was some someone came into his classroom one day, they turned the lights off and they had the white students and the black students like touch each other's faces. Right. To, like, to, to, to see that, like, oh, you know, we're human just like each other. And, you know, this, this sort of cringe. Yeah, th- th- this cringe, you know, bad. I mean, a lot of this stuff, stuff is bad. Yeah. Creepy, right? One more thing about these laws. So it does seem to me that when I read I read the Trump executive order earlier today and I looked at some of the laws and I was actually sort of astonished by how anodyne a lot of it seemed. A lot of it seemed really tame. And it struck me as the kind of thing like I know Jay Leno used to do this is to go out and um, ask people what they think about what some candidate said. And if you told them that it was the candidate of the other party, they're like, oh, oh, that's terrible. That's terrible. But if you tell them it was the candidate of their party, you know, two thumbs up. And it just yeah. seems like it's this kind of thing. Like if if Biden had issued an order like that, I don't know that anyone would have taken notice of it. You know, it seems so anodyne to me. And I, I get your point about about status. I hadn't thought of that. But like, clearly you would want to say that a plantation owner in 1850 in the U.S. has some kind of race-based status. So there's some stuff to clarify here, but it seems like why are the people who are a critical? Lot, yeah. yeah, why are the people critical of these bills? Not just say, not just saying, okay, let's improve the language here. I mean, I really doubt that any teacher is going to be taken to court for talking about 19th century land, you know, plantation owners. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I think that like largely the, the, the reason that you have the backlash is because, you know, people on the left or liberals have the impression, get the impression that this stuff is meant to intimidate uh, rather than merely enforce the letter of the law as it's written. Right. And then once, once the, once the law is written, you know, it's, it's too late to say, well, Hey, like, what about this part, uh, which would forbid, you know, this from happening by then the teacher's like, well, I don't want to risk that. I don't want to risk my job. And so the, the intimidation factor is I think why you don't see it. I think if we had versions of the bills that did stick exclusively to the kind of stuff that's already supposed to be protected by the civil rights uh, legislation from the sixties, then I agree. Then Biden, you know, if Biden had done it, people would probably celebrate it. I mean, there, there are already teachers who have been fired uh, over kinds of uh, demands from school boards in the, in the aftermath of certain bills being passed. Um, I know of at least one teacher in Florida being fired and then a teacher recently. Uh, there's that story that uh, a lot of people were talking about. I forgot. I don't I don't remember which state that was in, but um, like it's it's already started. So I definitely agree about, um, you know, chilling effects have to be taken into account with any any speech restrictions. Right. Um, chilling effects are real. And I definitely think that, that that's a real concern here. I'd say I'd say, though, we do want a certain amount of intimidation. Right. I mean, we don't we want someone to be intimidated away from imposing some kind of indoctrination that's harmful. And ideally, 
we would want to craft a law so there isn't so much intimidation for someone who's doing something that's legitimate. But a certain amount of a chilling effect is seems like is indeed the appropriate aim of of the law. And one other point I'll make is there's an interview with Kimberly Crenshaw on The Nation where she was specifically asked about a provision in Oklahoma's CRT bill that says something like individuals of a particular race should not be made to feel guilty or culp- or told they're culpable, something like that. I don't remember the exact wording. I think it's for, responsible. It's responsible for actions that other members of that race have done. And they specifically asked her about it. And she starts talking about how bad the Tulsa riot was and doesn't answer the question. And, and it was an edited interview. So perhaps she did, in fact, say, oh, well, obviously, I think that is true. But then the nation didn't think it, that was an important enough oh. response to register. Can I I, th- I think I know what she was trying to get across here just from reading some other stuff she's recently written, um, because she likes to talk about responsibility um, and she likes to say, like, it's it's on all of us today. Right. We are all responsible for kind of correcting the wrongs of the past that still have not been corrected. So when it comes to something like Tulsa, so she wouldn't say, you know, like exclusively white people should be in charge of redressing this. But the way that the law is written, it could imply that, well, if she thinks anyone who is white is responsible, then right. I think that's the idea she was trying to get across is that at least that's how uh, she writes in a recent piece in the Washington Post. Seems to me that that kind of collective responsibility might be precisely what's criticizable here. Yeah, I was wondering, this is kind of the sort of thing I was wondering to ask, because this I saw something like this from Mark Lamont Hill that I tweeted about. How how hmm. much, sometimes, it seems like, you know, we're permitting a kind of distinction between, here's the serious stuff, the academic stuff, right? Interest convergence, intersectionality, standpoint epistemology, whatever. Then there's this like consultant stuff, D'Angelo, maybe maybe Ibram Kendi, stuff like that. Um, and we can all agree that that stuff is bad. But, you know, what you just said Crenshaw said, it didn't sound like something that would be so unfamiliar coming from a training, right, by D'Angelo or Kendi. Um, and Mark Lamont Hill has this thing, you know, had this thing that he tweeted that I tweeted about where he said, um, you know, everybody has to, it's like, you have to do the work. It's like the lifelong work of like unlearning your biases or whatever. And that seems like exactly the work that you do in like a workshop with Robin DeAngelo, right? So I just want to know, like, what do you take to be the relationship between what we might call these like high and low forms or, 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 or you know, you could call it critical race theory and race consultancy, if you want to. What's the relationship between them? Why do they sometimes sound similar? And uh, to what extent, you know, let's say we do have a, a teacher who, who in a high school who's teaching Crenshaw or redlining or whatever it happens to be. Do we really expect them always not to be verging into this territory of because these things are so much out there, because this is kind of the vernacular in which these things are often expressed, how confident are we that they're not going to, not talking about should we legislate against it, but just like, do you really expect that it's never going to verge into this territory of own your whiteness and and take responsibility and unlearn your biases and, you know, 
purify yourself and that sort of thing. Definitely understand where you're coming from. And I think it would be kind of naive to expect that, especially if implemented in like a high school setting, right? Or, you know, on like a curricular level that teachers would never fall into this kind of language, right? Where we're supposed to be talking, in my view, right? What what we want to focus on are kind of like racist patterns, uh, racist institutions, and sort of structurally constituted racism rather than focusing on the individual biases of racialized persons. But inevitably, many people do kind of slip into this. And it's, it's kind of seductive, I think, to a, to a progressive mind to sort of like do the confession, right? And be like, oh, yes, I recognize. But I mean, I think on a level, there is a truth to it. It's just that it's often not communicated with the kind of nuance or humility necessary that sh- that should really like preface the converse or, or uh, not preface should uh, precede the conversation to make sure that people know that you're not accusing them of, you know, being a Nazi <laughs> or something when you say that when I, you know, and, and even like Robin D'Angelo does this in her book, but I think there's still, I think a lot of the issue is that people want to use strong sounding language to make what is supposed to be a, a softer point, and it ends up confusing people often or making people feel uncomfortable or upset such that they then just kind of refuse to engage um, the idea at all. Like saying, I don't like the way that Marco Mont Hill worded his answer. I don't, you know, or I think he worded his answer okay but the way that the question was framed was do you think all white people are inherently racist right that's a strong wording so when he says yes but then explains what he means by that you know i'm the person who's like thought about this often and heard this many times and so i don't like take offense to it because i think that there is a truth to the point that he intends to convey but it just doesn't get across to to people uh, most of the time. And so I think people should be more careful with their language. I think that, that the onus really is on the person communicating the point and that often we kind of, you know, we want the point to be significant and forceful, but we end up going too far with a kind of language. It occurs to me that you might find someone like Charles Murray uh, advancing hereditarian explanations for racial differences and then some crude knockoff racist, you know, is really using this to push for like explicit white supremacy or something like that. It seems like we recognize that there's like a, a continuum. And I think a lot of people would want to say that Murray has to say something. He's, it's, he's got, he's got to do, some kind of work to distance himself from people who would appropriate his ideas like that. And so I wonder if there might be a similar thing if like Crenshaw uh, should be on the defensive in a same way against people like D'Angelo for appropriating her ideas in this way. Is there not something in the idea itself in 
core critical race theory that lends itself to this kind of abuse? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And like, I guess the way that I'm inclined to respond is to think, is to clarify how it's being framed. So like, do I think that both Murray and Crenshaw like ought to distinguish their views from uh, sort of bastardizations from their views? Yes, I think that would be a good thing. Do I think that they're necessarily like that they have some kind of obligation? I mean, I don't want to talk about Murray's views because I actually just don't know his views well enough to like feel comfortable saying that like he's in the okay camp. Um, I have seen many people argue otherwise. I mean, I just haven't read him. Just instead, like someone who advocates for thinks that races don't exist, but uh, that we should be absolutely colorblind. That's different from someone who thinks Plug in Charles Murray is a bad example. <laughs> Plug in whatever you think um, is the appropriate example from, from okay, the Marl's Churry. We have Marl's Churry okay. who argues, who does a race IQ stuff, but he doesn't believe in any inherent racial um, differences. Okay. Yeah, no. That, do, do I think that there's necessarily like an obligation? I don't think so. I think it'd be kind of weird to suggest that there were, but I do think that it would be good, all things considered, for people to distinguish themselves from bastardizations of their views that they don't endorse. Yeah, I actually think I I agree with that. My rap name, by the way, is Gnarls Murray. Um, <laughs> or, or my yeah, no, that's not true. I don't have a rap name. Um, that's funny as hell. But but yeah, I actually think that in general, I try to limit the number of responsibilities that I assign to people just because you guys, it's okay if you do, because you guys know about ethics and stuff like that. But if I attribute a responsibility to somebody, I'm really going out on a limb. So I tend to say like, it's not really your job if somebody misunderstands you, right? Unless you've been like super unclear or something like that. But what I'm I'm wondering something a little bit different which is like do all the critical race theorists really actually disagree with like d'angelo and kendi right like do they actually like disavow i mean some some for sure agree with at least kendi i would think and some i i bet agree with d'angelo too sure apparently yeah apparently kendi is regularly on crenshaw's podcast and i haven't listened to it but someone who a friend of mine who has says that she's never emphasizing daylight between them. She's always sort of boosting what he, whatever it is he's saying. I I don't know. We, we can't, you know, some of us are just very agreeable people who like to, you know, who like to emphasize agreement. So maybe we shouldn't take too much from that about Crenshaw in particular, but I think that the point is just a little bit that this, it's just something that I've wanted to push back on for a while that there's this idea and I don't think, Sam, you've said this, but some people say this. They're like, there are these people doing the serious work, you know, and then there are these consultants who are just out for the money or whatever. And you look at what's going on and there's a lot of cross-pollination. There's a lot of inspiration from one to the other. And there are actually some people who are serious who, you know, the people who say I'm a, I'm an act- academic as well as an activist who say, well, this is actually this, you know, maybe some of the activism that we're that we're trying to see, right? So it's just something that I wanted to point out about the way the discourse has taken shape that there's, and this is something that I wrote about last summer when, 
suddenly it became okay all of a sudden to hate Robin DiAngelo, right? When all these lists came out with all these books, right? And my theory, not to be, maybe this is a little controversial, but my theory was like, she's very simple. Well, it's okay to hate her because she's white, right? It's so okay to be like, here's this white woman profiting all of, off of all this stuff. Then you look at Ibram Kendi getting these like $10 million, you know, Jack gives him like $10 million, like, I think like no strings attached, but it's not, you know, it's a little bit weirder to criticize, right? You don't want to be weird and say, I don't like how this black man is talking about racism because then everybody gets really mad at you and calls you some mean names, right? But if at the end of the day, there's a lot of cross-pollination and there's a lot of agreement, well, I think D'Angelo was a little bit kind of the, um, the, the sacrificial lamb to a certain extent for like, she's the one who you're allowed to write all these negative reviews of and stuff like that. When a lot of the rest of the project isn't so far from her. And that's just, I don't necessarily have a view on that. I just, you know, I think that that is a big part of the dynamic that it's as I think Spencer used the word continuum. I think it's more of a continuum than, than this kind of dichotomy. Agreed more of a continuum than a, than a dichotomy for sure. And yeah, I, I think you're right about, about there being a different kind of, I mean, definitely like more of a stigma around criticizing um, Kendi than around criticizing D'Angelo. I have still criticized Kendi because I feel confident enough in um, my belief that he's wrong about a lot. Um, but like, do I feel the same about like in like giving a talk at the APA where I exclusively criticize D'Angelo versus one where I exclusively criticize Kendi? Well, maybe like now I'm confident enough to not feel super nervous about that. But like I was nervous to criticize Kendi when I gave my talk where I criticized him. But I, I think there, there are always going to be certain stigmas. Uh, that's not to say that they're like great, but um, understandable. So this segues into something that I wanted to talk about. I've already mentioned this to Oliver, and it's this um, frustration I have. And it, I've noticed in academia, if you point out distinctions between different kinds of right-wingers, people seem not to care, even if they're like really, really basic distinctions. Like I, I saw a keynote speaker described Milton Friedman as a neoconservative. And to take one example, there was, Oliver, you'll be familiar with this example of when I presented at the APA with Rishi Joshi in 2018, uh, arguing that some conservatives could be victims of epistemic injustice on the basis of their political convictions. I, we got some blowback for that, but not even going into that, just the comments the person got up and just said, anyone who saw the Unite the Right march knows what conservatism is. And it was like, yeah, I had to get up and say, actually, they call themselves the alt-right because they're the alternative to the normal right. They hate conservatives. Look at the nasty mobbing of David French, for example. But anyway, my point is, the more sympathetic you are to a view, the more you think that distinctions between related views are really profoundly important and deserve different labels. And so if you're not on the right, you think it's all basically the same can of sardines and the alt-right 
and conservatives and libertarians are all really, really close to one another, where from where I'm sitting, it looks like we're light years apart. And then, you know, I look at Kendi and D'Angelo and Crenshaw, and yes, there are differences between them, but they're no more significant than the differences between Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson. They're all in the same camp. And I think it's almost like a power move for the left to say that you have to be familiar with these minutiae that distinguish them. And really, I do think we're talking about minutiae. We're talking about details in an overall shared worldview. You know, you've got to be familiar with the 31 Baskin Robbins flavors of intersectional feminism to earn the right to say anything about, about these people. And so I kind of think that the insistence that we can't use the same label to describe all of these people that, oh, no, no, critical race theory is something totally different. Well, I don't know. It seems to me that they're close enough that for non-academics, certainly it makes sense to use the same label for them. And so this this relates to um, a point I made uh, that you actually inspired me to realize, Spencer, when we were uh, arguing about the definition one time on Twitter that then I talked about um, in a conversation recently with Rod Graham, where I realized that I had been kind of trying to, you know, keep this narrow definition of critical race theory, according to which, you know, Robin D'Angelo is just not a critical race theorist. But you were like, well, wait a minute. If we lay out all the tenets of critical race theory that, say, all critical race theorists agree on, well, if Robin D'Angelo agrees with all those two, then why not call her a critical race theorist? And then, you know, I was like, well, fair point. The reason that I was so uh, resistant to allowing her to sort of get into this definition is because I see so many people picking on one critical race theorist, finding something that they said, and then using that to denounce critical race theory, right? You know, especially with this Chris Rufo climate, where Chris Rufo says, a critical race theory teaches that all white people are racist. You know, critical race theory says that, uh, or critical race theory is just uh, Marxism, where uh, you replace the bourgeoisie with whiteness and the proletariat with blackness, right? These are just absolutely ridiculous characterizations. And so I was, you know, in, in a kind of defensive state. So I agree that it's okay for people to have a definition of critical race theory, according to which D'Angelo and Kendi fall into it. Just people need to keep in mind then that since they're working with, you know, a broadened conception of what critical race theory is, that, you know, the fact that D'Angelo or Kendi believes something does not mean that critical race theory generally supports something. But it's a, of an evolving conception, isn't it? I mean, m- might we say that what CRT is in 2021 is different than what it was in 1985? Doesn't the fact that Kendi and D'Angelo are impactful, not necessarily the most subtle thinkers, but impactful doesn't that mean they get a say in what it is? Well, I mean, I think you get into nuances, right? I think that here, when you talk about getting a say in what critical race theory is, it becomes relevant that neither of them identify as critical race theorists, right? They don't claim to speak for the movement. Uh, I think that counts. 
Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. No, I think it's it's probably good that we've avoided d- discussing particular personalities for the most part here. But I did want to I did want to push back a little bit on. So, isn't it true that there are at least some claims that look a bit like taking at least some aspect of Marxism and kind of switching in and out? So, for example, if you read the article situating feminist epistemology and epistem by um Natalie Alston or Ashton and Robin McKenna from a few years ago, they basically explicitly talk about standpoint epistemology as a kind of updating of, of class consciousness, right? Where, where it's yeah, like yeah, essentially, yeah. A, essentially a Marxist view where there's a kind of achievement of gaining the kind of perspective of your, of your group and the group, the groups are just, uh, identity groups replace or supplement class groups um, in the kind of... And that's like a feminist in, consciousness, in, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. A feminist consciousness as opposed to a class consciousness. So is it so... I understand that, like, look, I know that people on the left are like, for years and years, conservatives have called, you know, like, you know, Obamacare is called like Marxist and socialist. So I understand that people on the left are like very much like you hear a conservative call something Marxist or socialist, and it just immediately seems like nonsense. But isn't it true that at least some of the theoretical underpinnings are kind of inherited from earlier Marxist theory? When it comes to critical race theory, I'm less inclined to say so than for something like feminist epistemology, which comes like specifically from like a Marxist feminist tradition that I think was pioneered by, I want to say, Nancy Hartsock. I remember talking about this a little bit in both my uh, decolonial feminism class and my Marx class. We like spent a week on Marxist fe- versions of feminism. So I I actually don't know in critical race theory, like in the like legal academy, what the kind of apparatus is epistemologically. Because the epistemology is, I think, kind of implied rather than explicitly discussed since like they're talking much more just about law in like critical philosophy of race, like, you know, when Charles Mills has his kind of, I mean, he doesn't use the term race, race or racial consciousness, but he is inspired by Marx and by, uh, by feminist appropriations of Marx. Um, So at least when it comes to like the philosophical discourse on epistemology in sort of anti-racist philosophy or critical philosophy of race, that stuff is there. But when it comes to like the stuff that, you know, people usually mean when they are uh, in good faith talking about critical race theory, like the law scholarship, there's, there's actually kind of a lot of distancing from Marx by, by many people so some people like Richard Delgado, he likes to be a Marxist. He, he would say that, you know, he's he's more Marxist. But the people in like the Crenshaw generation who sort of come up with Kimberly Crenshaw, like Mari Matsuda, Charles Lawrence and others who are much more of a fan of like the intersectional framework than the uh, more materialist Marxist framework, because if the idea of just replacing class with race makes no sense to someone who's intersectional who cares about class, right? And in the original 
you know, non tumblerized version of intersectionality class is a, is a serious uh, thing to contend with. So hope that answers your question. No, that makes sense. I would say, I think that uh, there is a, an overemphasis among the critics of CRT on the origins. Like I think we should just evaluate the idea based on what it is rather than uh, where it came from. It, it, did it come from postmodernism? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, and similarly, I think there's a similar kind of fallacy involved in both the 1619 project and the 1776 response. Like, like mm-hmm. where the nation began, to, does that determine our essence? Is this some sort of national yep. origin of essence of origins thing? I a hundred percent agree. Point. And this is something, this is something when I reviewed cynical theories, you know, Sam, Sam and I talked about the books, the book as, as we were writing these reviews, but they ended up a lot different. One of the central ideas in my review was just, it's not clear what the genealogy is supposed to achieve, right? You find a bunch of postmodernists, then you say these people read the postmodernists, and then they kind of inherited some of their ideas somehow. And it's not clear, like, you haven't ruled out any other causes. You haven't said because the postmodernists are bad, these people are bad, or because these people are bad, the postmodernists are bad, right? You have to actually make an argument that has the genealogy as some sort of premise. But basically, there's there's very few cases. This is the reason that we have something called genetic fallacy, right? There's very few cases in which it's clear what the argument is supposed to be that takes the genealogy as um as the premise. And this is more of my this is kind of what I think should be the the philosophical question about not the like should we teach our kids this because like I think as we've been saying you know like in some ways we probably really shouldn't and then in in some forms it's you know probably part of teaching history but the the claim like America is essentially this way because this thing happened at the founding of America or something like that this claim in some cases means something very concrete about the effects of certain policies. And in other cases seems to mean something very, very vague about like the essence of a nation or something like that. Mm -hmm, And the claims mm -hmm. about like the essence of a nation, I just don't really, I I, I mean, maybe they're supposed to be poetical, right? If you say it's written into the fabric of whatever, Maybe it's like a poetical way of cashing out the concrete claims, but if they're supposed to stand on their own argumentatively, um, then I've just never seen anybody clarify. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen anybody clarify what that argument is supposed to be. And I would love, you know, Amiya Srinivasan was, I think, writing a book defending the use of genealogy in philosophy, and I don't think that book has come out yet. Um, she has an article called Genealogy Something and Worldmaking. Um, which mm-hmm. honestly I couldn't quite make heads or tails of either. So I think, you know, one thing that I think she said that is right is that genealogy is something that was very accepted in continental philosophy as an argumentative style and is very uncommon in analytic philosophy as an argumentative style. You know, you see Nietzsche and Foucault, you know, Foucault has this article, Nietzsche Genealogy History or something like that. You know, it's a big part of those traditions. Marx has his genealogies, right? And I think it's an. She thinks it's a disadvantage of analytic philosophy that we don't use this tool. And I think it's an advantage because it's not clear, it's not clear what the tool is supposed to achieve, right? And this is a, 
it's an argument that I get into a lot with intellectual historians where they say this can't, this thing came from this and it led to this and that, and that. And I just say, okay, so what, have, you know, what have we learned? And um, I guess to a certain degree for intellectual histori- history, the genealogy is kind of worth it for its own sake, but for analytic philosophy, it can't be worth, worth it for its own sake because it doesn't lead to a philosophical conclusion. So yeah, another point of agreement, I guess, but I'm, I'm glad that we got that out there. Cause I think that's a real, it's a really interesting philosophical question. And I, I have never seen a, a clear and convincing answer to it. There's there's a really good paper by Charles Mills on um, critiquing a kind of a kind of popular argument, well, popular at least uh, among some folks in some academic circles. I can't remember what specific discipline it was. It might have been like Caribbean studies specifically that he, uh, scholars that he was objecting to, or like you know, kind of like decolonial broadly um, scholars I've seen arguing uh, this kind of thing, specifically taking up a saying from Audre Lorde, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And she, so, so this is often taken to mean sort of like, well, you know, we shouldn't think that Kant will give us, you know, like a kind of anti-racist uh, foundation for, uh, you know, anti-racist moral theory because Kant himself was, you know, a, a, a raging racist. Now, what that, that's that sort of thing is actually not what Audre Lorde meant. Um, interestingly, um, you have to read the essay in context to kind of get the nuance from what she's talking about. But it's it's been taken up this way by uh, many scholars, and so Charles has this essay. I think it's called Rousseau something in the the master's tools and uh they're arguing against charles you know you can't reappropriate liberal social contract theory for anti-racist purposes because look this is the master's tools this you know liberalism for most of its history was white supremacist and it was this uh you know racial contract you know it wasn't named that he's named it that uh but it was used to oppress and so you can't use the conceptual apparatus now uh, for liberatory purposes. And he's basically just like, well, what's the argument? Like, what is the argument? And he gives, he he like is very charitable and is like, well, let's think what they could possibly be. And he like goes through sort of all the potential arguments. And the only one that like really could be compelling is some kind of argument that locates some feature or that locates the kind of oppressive, unreclaimable, that's not a term, but nature within the the very concept of whatever it is that we're examining. And you just can't find that uh, unless it is, no, well, you can in some cases, right? Say it's uh, racism, right? Should we use racism? Well, no, the tool itself, it's baked into the to the concept of racism that it's oppressive, so that's not going to be a, a good path forward. But he's like, well, what about the idea of conceptualizing society as persons coming together to negotiate the terms of uh, under which they will live? What about that is oppressive on its own? Well, all you have is the, the contingent fact that it was excluded, that it excluded certain people, but that can be ameliorated. So, I mean... I think he argues it very well. Also, the first couple of pages are just very entertaining because he's kind of like go, going like over the top 
he's talking specifically about the metaphor. He's like, you know, well, in fact, the master's tools could easily destroy the master's house. I mean, think about it. You have a pickaxe, you got a hammer. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, great stuff. I, I love that um, that style of analytic philosophy paper where it's like, these people didn't even give an argument, but my brain is so large that I can imagine, you know, I can imagine every possible argument, even though my opponents could imagine precisely zero. I think it's, it's such a great flex that we're able to do as analytic philosophers. <laughs> yeah, Charles, Charles is, uh, I think, a, a fun stylist. Uh, he can be a little, you know, a little uh, show offy sometimes, but I, I don't know, I like it if all of the tools are the master's tools and they would have to be because a few hundred years ago, everything, everyone was racist. So how do we ever, how do we ever get out of this predicament? It seems like we either can use the master's tools or we admit that we're screwed forever. Yeah. You'd have to identify some tool using person who never oppressed anyone. Seems hard to do. Well, gentlemen, yeah. this has been <laughs> really good and I'm, I'm very happy to, have had this got we got an hour into this one without uh, any interruption. We've been yeah. struggling with some technical difficulties. Three different people in three different time zones. So I I'm a, afraid to tempt fate. I'm afraid I'm I, I'm still afraid I'm going to lose this this um, bit. So I think we ought to probably wrap it up. I should say, Sam, I I appreciate that you acknowledge when people make good points. Like I see people dunk on you on Twitter for acknowledging, like, oh, you make a good point. And then people were like, yeah. in your face, man, in your face. And it's yeah, like, why yeah, that? It's a pretty, I... pretty perverse incentive, I would say, putting my, you know, my neoliberal hat on. You really don't want to punish people for doing what you want them to do in discourse. <laughs> like I was like, oh, yeah, I no, I was wrong about this. And <laughs> people are like, oh, that's what you get. Anybody have any final words? I think I'm. I've said my piece. This was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll return to the discourse and see how it looks in light of this conversation. I uh, I certainly hope that, uh, you know, among the people who are offering these bills, you know, some of whom I'm friends with, or, or at least through Twitter, I'm acquaintances with, you know, I hope the overbreath concerns are taken seriously. I did see I saw somebody say something about, oh, we'll like litigate out the kinks or something like that. I think you have to take the chilling effects concerns a little bit more seriously than that. I do think, you know, I do think that one thing that I also like about like a lot of this discourse, both sides are basically acting on the presumption as much of political discourse goes that nobody on the other side is acting in good faith. And uh, I don't think we had any of that presumption here tonight. So I think it was a, a successful discussion mainly for that reason. Yeah, definitely enjoyed talking with you both. It was a great conversation, I think. And yeah, I appreciate yeah. you both. You know, uh, I feel like we all found a good balance of pushback and concession for our respective sides. I mean, I don't even know where, I mean, I, you know, you guys know I'm a little lefty guy, but uh, I, you know, I think of you both as kind of like centrist liberals, maybe, I don't know. Um, no, nah, I'm but, thoroughly right wing. I'm thoroughly right wing, but I'm glad I managed to fool you. Yeah, I, I'm the milk taste one. I'm the yeah, milk taste one. Oliver's, okay. Oliver's the centrist here. But yeah, so centrist my Bernie my, supporter. <laughs> there you go. My last message, because we didn't talk about this much. 
when Chris Rufo tells you that something is critical race theory or that something is happening in schools, go do the research for yourself. Go do the research for yourself. On on that on that um, <laughs> on that um, encouragement toward personal scholarship and um, edification. Yes, I'm going to uh, say good goodbye to you all. <laughs>